0: I'm Lisa Bodner. Welcome to The Shiny Show. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Shiny People. I post some different content on there. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends. And if you would like to support the show via a few dollars a month, the cost of a cup of fancy coffee, then you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash shinyepipeople. Thanks to the new patrons from this past week. I appreciate your support. Today, I'm talking with Lauren McCullough. Lauren is an assistant professor of epidemiology at Rollins School of Public Health. Her overarching research interest is in the life course epidemiology of breast cancer and lymphoma. Through her work, Lauren seeks to improve cancer outcomes among low-income and minority populations by identifying molecular targets for behavioral and therapeutic intervention. I was introduced to Lauren at the 2019 SER meeting in Minneapolis, where she was awarded the Brian McMahon Early Career Award. At the meeting, she also co presented a workshop with Tim Lash called Hone Your Soft Skills and Own the Job Market. I think everyone who is interested in soft skills hates the name soft skills because it makes them sound like irrelevant or simple, but they're really not. They relate to how you work. Soft skills include interpersonal skills, communication skills, listening skills, time management, and empathy, among others. I've heard people say that we should call these people skills. Certainly, we all need technical skills to be successful in our careers, but people with good people skills make for outstanding teammates, supervisors, and colleagues. When I heard that Lauren was a master at people skills, I knew I wanted to get to know her beyond just the simple hello, nice to meet you at SER. Today, Lauren focuses on goal setting and then how you can map career priorities and goal setting onto the amount of time you allocate to certain tasks. I hope you enjoyed this chat. and there are so many things I want to talk to you about. One of the things that I've read that you've written about is goal setting. You talk about these three questions to ask yourself. Who are you? What do you want? And what
1: is your plan? Right. You know, we're overachievers. All of us epidemiologists, scientists are. And a lot of times we see the end. I want to get into a PhD program. I want to get a tenure track job. I want to get tenure. But the process is not well defined. And so for me, it became about, well, how do I define that process for myself? And in trying to do that, which is like, well, what's the plan? I found myself thinking, well, why is this outcome important for me? I think we put our sort of box around these things, but I I think it has a lot to do with Well, what is it that you want that may not actually be the outcome that you're looking for? Um, It's the gold star, but may not necessarily be your gold star. And so that's where the first one came from. Like, who am I? And this is one that I come back to probably almost every week to make sure that the things that I'm doing are getting me towards my goal, but are also consistent with who I am as a person, because Mm -hmm. I feel like that disconnect can leave a lot of just internal strife and dissatisfaction in life in general. And I found asking that of myself has been particularly important in the pandemic, because if I look around my current situation, like who am I, mom, diaper changer, kindergarten teacher, like all of these things, I have to constantly remind myself, Lauren, you're a scholar and you're a scholar that's working to eliminate disparities in breast cancer. And so just reaffirming for myself who I am as a person can sometimes get me through situations where I don't necessarily feel like what I'm doing day to day is who I see myself as. And then, you know, the second question, what do I want? Um, I think as scholars, we have all kinds of things that we want professionally, academically, scientifically. And I think defining that for yourself is really important because everybody is doing great work in multiple domains. And so you have to really decide, well, where do I fit? What is it that I want to do? Who do I want to affect? How do I want to change taking a step back and saying, okay, well, this is the goal. This is this is the area, the domain that I want to work in. I do want a tenure track job. I don't want a tenure track job. Like really just defining what is it that I want? Not what the world tells me I should want, but mm-hmm. what is it that I really want to do? And then the last one, the what is your plan, is the part where I think people don't give enough attention. You know, I have these goals, but I don't actually have steps to getting there. Mm-hmm. And I don't have sources of accountability. Um, and so I tell people, You know, visual accountability, verbal accountability are are good ways to make sure that you're making progress towards what it is that you want. Because if you don't have a good plan for getting there, then, you know, again, that can be another moment where there's just this disconnect between saying this is what I want. And then this did or did not happen. And planning for me is really important because time is limited. Making sure I've allocated. I want to write an R1. Well, I'm at home with three kids all day. How am I going to do that? You know, you can say one thing, but actually doing it is something completely different. So making sure you have that plan in place, I think, is really important.
0: How did you learn this?
1: You know, a lot of it was reading, you know, the, the, all the self-help books, like mm-hmm. Seven Signs of Highly Effective People Me kind of ish <laughs> books. You know, I think as academics, we're trained to think about the science and the methods and all of these things. But in some ways, this is such a business. My husband is is actually in business, and so like I read a lot of the stuff that he brings home about mm. management and negotiation and all of these other things, and so I find all of that very useful um, in reading these books is kind of how I've arrived at my personal, who are you, what do you want, what's your plan?
0: Is this something that you feel like is almost a calling for you?
1: Definitely. I'm an advocate. I'm an INFJ on the Myers-Briggs. And so I'm always thinking about how do I take what it is that I know and give it out? I actually have a personal like mission statement. And a part of that statement is to leave empty. And so that means like everything that I know, all the knowledge that I've gained, like I want to make sure that before I leave this place, like I've given that out. So there are little sprinkles of Lauren all over the place.
0: You also talk about how career priorities and goal setting fit in to time
1: allocation. I mean, it's very simple, right? If I say, you know, I I want to write a paper, um, but then you look at your 40-hour week and you spend... Five hours working on the paper, your time doesn't match what you say your goals are. And so it really is outlining, well, what are the goals? What are the most important things and making sure that the time that you're spending matches with what you say is most important. And so I, you know, I tell people calendar block, like if you need to write, block that time on your calendar, that writing time, protect it. Just like you will protect a meeting with your mentor or mentee or dean or boss, like you protect that time for the thing that's most important for you. Um, And you make sure you get that done. It's a simple process, but in practice, it can be really difficult. And I tell people habits are really unspectacular things that lead to spectacular results. And if you can just- I love that so much. (laughs) If you can just develop these habits over time, you're gonna have this outstanding endpoint, but it doesn't feel spectacular doing it. um, Right. And so if you can just get past that part, then you can get the end result you're really looking for.
0: What missteps did you make along the way, if you'd be willing to share any of them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't had any missteps. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) No, I've had a lot of missteps. I think my biggest is not understanding what I needed in a mentor, because I don't think I took the time to really understand what who am I and what is it that you need? Hmm. And then who is the person that's going to be able to get you what you need? And also understand sort of the totality of who I am as a person. Um, and so that's that's probably the biggest thing that I talk to trainees about, you know, ones that are interested in Emory. And if they decide not to come to Emory, I say, hey, I'm still here to talk to you through this process because it's a really important process. And you want to make sure that the people you align yourself with are really going to be the types of people that you need, the advocates that you need, the sponsors that you need.
0: What do you think you needed in a mentor in those years? Was this like pre-doc time, post, like early, I mean, your assistant professor level now. Yeah.
1: So this was, um, in my graduate school. So my master's, um, Mm -hmm. and then I sort of found myself about year one in, in my pre-doc, um, but what was it that I needed? I needed um, someone that understood my passion for what my research interests were and how to take that and be able to layer things on top of it that were going to be well received at peer review or were going to be fundable as grants. Like somebody that taught me that art. Someone that understood, I think, the challenges um, being a woman and being a minority in academia and not feeling very disconnected from, I think, people that. Um, You know, had the capacity to really propel a career. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to Emory, and I wasn't initially matched with Tim, but ultimately, you know, he became my mentor. Part of this was listen, I don't need you to just be my mentor. You need to be my sponsor. You are Tim Lash, right? Like, I need for you to leverage who you are for me if you feel like I'm worthy and deserving, right? And Mm -hmm. so there was an entire mentoring contract that was written up and signed. And um, that's how I approach it now. Like I tell people up front, like this is what I need. And if you're not capable of doing that, totally fine. Like I can find someone that is. Yeah. Can you
0: describe what the difference is between a mentor and a sponsor?
1: A mentor can be a sponsor. You know, a mentor is a person that's very career driven. Usually the relationship is more long term. A sponsor I think of as being a person, the relationship's Sometimes you don't even know exist or if they exist, they can be very short term. And that's just a person that's going to advocate for you. In the ideal situation, your mentor would also be your sponsor. But they're also when you're trying to find a job or you're going up for tenure or whatever, you need somebody in addition to your mentor. You need mm-hmm. other people that are going to say this person is worthy. This person is excellent. They do get science. Um, and and I think that's where the sponsorship comes in. And so thinking about, you know, and I always Tell students, like, you're not going to get everything you need in one person. Make sure you have, I say, a personal board of advisors is what I call it. Um, (laughs) Again, like, I I borrow from business all the time. (laughs) You need coaches and mentors and sponsors. And, you know, these relationships are not just hierarchical, but they're also lateral. So having peer mentors and, and peer sponsors, I think, are really important. And so really sort of charting out, you know, who are my people, um, I think is really important, as, especially as an early career scientist.
0: Tell me about being a real estate investor. Like, literally, this came as a complete shock to me.
1: Yeah, I think to most people. Um. <laughs>
0: It's so businessy. Like, right. I would, I would be so bad at this.
1: No, I, I, I don't think you would. Um, oh, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I became interested in real estate in the last year of my master's program. I was living in Nashville. I went to Meharry Medical College for my master's, and just sort of seeing how neighborhoods are organized. And wondering why and how it continues to be organized, like literally across the train tracks, like was Vanderbilt, which is where I went for undergrad. You cross the train tracks and it was all the HBCUs, Fisk, Meharry, Tennessee State. You know, you couldn't find, you know, fresh groceries. You know, that's where all the McDonald's were. Like at Vanderbilt, I literally had to go two miles, three miles before I could get fast food. I worked at a soup kitchen, so just got it to interact with a- all kinds of people, just understanding like what their options were for living. So most were on section 8 housing and your options with section eight are far and few between. like most section eight opportunities are in lower income neighborhoods with bad schools, you know, no green space, et cetera. And so you know, with the little money that I had and my husband was actually working a real job and so he had more money than I. I convinced him like we should we should really just invest in real estate, like let's invest in Section 8 housing, but let's do it in areas where people can actually go to good grocery stores and their kids Mm. could go to good schools. And so we just started with a few and getting tenants in that normally would not have qualified to live in those Mm. types of neighborhoods. Right. Like they didn't have the credit score. They had. Records. I mean, we've we've had people that have been in jail. It's amazing when you sit down and you talk to these folks and their stories. It's like this guy can't get an apartment or buy a house because he has a record of something that he did when he's in his 20s and he's 45 and he's a veteran and has an income plus a VA check. I'm like, you more than qualify. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're so appreciative. They take care of the properties because they're so appreciative you know, and with this particular you know guy I was talking about at the end of it, I was able to write him a letter applying for a mortgage saying, you know, he's been my tenant for four years and never once has he been late. You know, good guy took care of the property. And so that's kind of how it started. And along the way, you know, they're paying their rents. The principal, you know, is going down. And, you know, we eventually sell the properties. We make a profit and we buy more properties for more people Mm -hmm. to live in. I love buying houses. I love thinking about neighborhoods. I love decorating, like everything that comes (laughs) along with houses. I love. It's Um, pretty behind
0: you. Thank you. you It's
1: really nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love decorating. So anyway, it's been really good. We've invested in Georgia, North Carolina and Tennessee, all the places we've lived in. That's wonderful.
0: Let's talk for a minute about pandemic parenting. Wouldn't it be nice if by the time this came out, like pandemic pandering, pandering. (laughs) pandemic Pandemic parenting was not a thing
1: anymore? Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be amazing. I actually was saying just this morning, like, it's going to feel amazing to get up, get these kids ready and send them off to school. Like that seems so foreign to me right now.
0: I don't even remember, like, what is it like when I get up in the morning and everyone gets ready and I leave the house? Right? (laughs) What? What is that? How did that feel? Like, how did I get ready in time? What about lunches?
1: Right? Yeah. (laughs) You have to rediscover rediscover everything you used to do.
0: So, you have three little boys. How old are they?
1: Um, My oldest is eight, Um, my middle is five, Um, and the baby is now um, 13 months.
0: Oh my gosh, you have a thirteen-month-old. Whoa, I do. are you like is is he sleeping through the night?
1: No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Which yeah. everybody at Emory that knows me knows. Like I go to my support group, and I'm like, y'all, he's still not sleeping. I, I need more. <laughs> I need more advice. <laughs> you know, with an infant, when there are no other kids, like you sleep, you take naps during the day, et cetera. It's like, I'm not sleeping at night. I'm getting up at 5.00 AM to do work with nobody else here. And then there's no napping because I have these other two that my husband and I are tag teaming, like with the classroom. I used to say the hardest thing I ever did in life was getting certified to be a lifeguard. And so now this trumps it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would think so. How have you changed your expectations, not just in
1: terms of work, but in terms of like personally and at home? I asked myself, do I need to do this? Like, does it have to be me? <laughs> Can it not be somebody else? And then do I have to do this now? Those are the two questions I asked myself. You know, for example, I was helping a, a senior PI with you know, some preliminary data collection and I was going to pilot an interview, uh, a questionnaire for them and I was like there's I don't have time to do this I'm like you know what do you just need black women because if you need black women I got a whole family of them (laughs) 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 like it doesn't have to be me can I just hook you up with like all my aunties they'll they'll do it for you right Uh um and then things that it's like no Lauren you actually need to be the one to do this like then it's okay but do I have to do it now can I not push this a few months? Can I push this till next year? Um, and so that's how I've handled the work related things. Um, just really sort of asking myself those questions, you know, at home it's harder because I'm surprised the kid hasn't busted through this door because Mm -hmm. everything they need is like, I need you to do it. I can't go ask daddy and I need you to do it now. (laughs) Right now. So that doesn't work for the kids. Um, but I've learned like just honesty with them. Um, actually really goes a long way. I, I tell my eight year old, like mommy's working on a grant and it's really important for me. And I'll tell him what it's about. He actually will look over my shoulder and read stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually it's been really refreshing because I think they've learned me as Lauren and not just as mommy. Um, And that's something that I, I really, I like, I like that they know that I'm this person and I have these goals and these are the things I want to accomplish.
0: Lauren, what's something that few people would know about you?
1: I was a competitive baton twirler for 12 years of what? my life. It was intense. You know, this is like being at the gym 20 hours a week. I had a coach. Um, I traveled to compete. And, you know, people are like, oh, you're a majorette. I'm like, No. I was a competitive baton twirler.
0: Wait, were you in any group at all, ever? Like a marching band type thing? Yeah, so I
1: was in band, but I was the feature twirler. So they're like the majorettes. And then there's the one that like does all the big tricks and tosses it up really high, does three batons, sometimes does fire, I did machetes. Um, What? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, they're they're real legit machetes. But yeah, I, I twirled forever. I won my first state title at 12. Oh my gosh. Um, and then I won my first national title at 16. I think I was the first oh my gosh. black woman to. Really? Win. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Incredible. But what is like one of the most impressive things that you could do with twirling a baton or a machete or you know, <laughs> a, a human being? I don't know all the things that you can twirl, but it seems like almost
1: <laughs> anything. So Fujimis is when you twirl like on your elbows. So like it's the baton is sort of rotating on your elbows. You never touch it. With your hands. um, With your hands. You never touch it with your hands. Right. So just it goes on your elbows and then um, neck roll. So the baton twirls on your neck. And so like I could put it on, spin, go down to the floor, roll over the floor, (laughs) get back up and it's still kind of spinning on your neck. Cool. And did you do fire? So I did fire, but when I went to college, so I went to Vanderbilt, and I was their featured twirler. NCAA, oh, said, you
0: were a featured twirler at yes. college. Oh yes. my gosh! Yes, that's that was amazing. That was part
1: of my scholarship. But NCAA came down and was like, "No more fire." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> Something about the fields and money, right. <laughs> and like, who needs it for football? Yeah. Arson! I
0: didn't. <laughs> we we'll just use machetes. We will just use machetes, and that's what I did.
1: I just pulled out the machetes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What a cool thing. Why did you stop?
1: The Olympics decided they weren't going to include twirling as a sport. And so I was like, why am I doing this? If I can't go to the Olympics, like, there's no point. This
0: was this was a thought that you were going to go to the Olympics to twirl. If they included it as
1: a sport, yeah, I was going to keep at it. Oh, my god! But they didn't choose twirling. They chose, like, hula hooping or something like that, right? Like, Damn, those hula hoopers! <laughs> so I was like, not putting in the hours. I can't go to No, not happening. So did dance replace the twirling? I took dance as a part of my training for twirling. And so I had a lot of background. But yeah, once I got to college, I, I picked up dancing a lot more and was on Dance Line for Vanderbilt, et cetera. But found a company that I really loved. And so started dancing with them. And the interesting thing is, I have never been the type of person that likes to be on stage. Like when, when they put on the costumes and the makeup and the lights, like that's just not my thing. I like to be hmm. in the studio, on the ground. Like I like the work yeah. of it. So yeah, Dan, I danced for I guess about six, seven years. So yeah, it was a huge part of my life. Um, but got to meet a bunch of cool people and do a lot of cool yeah, things. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so um, got to dance for Busta Rhymes and what? Yeah, really? yeah, two famous jazz artists. I'm probably aging myself, but Kirk Whalum, who's um, Whitney Houston's saxophonist. And Dave Cause, they're both um, Grammy Award winning jazz artists. Got to do like entire sets with them. Oh my gosh. And then Maya Angelou did a set in Nashville, and I actually opened for her performing a Still I Rise by Yolanda Adams. <gasps> so that was the pinnacle of my dance. Did you meet her? So I did not get to meet her, and she was oh, so, damn. because they were late. She was so apologetic. She sent me like all of her books, all signed. Like, and she saw the tape. She was like, you're amazing. Thank you for doing this. So that was great. Lauren, you are super talented. So get out of epidemiology. Well, right before I went to UNC, I was actually auditioning to be, to dance for Beyonce. What? Yes. Yes, I gotten through a first round of auditions um, and they were we were planning to drive down for a second audition and I got, you know, accepted into UNC. And so then it was like, well, are you going to go and get a PhD or are you going to like see this thing through? <laughs> um,
0: you could have been one
1: of Beyonce's backup dancers. Beyonce. And it's so funny because I was watching Homegoing or Homecoming, whatever it is. The one she did at Coachella, like, a couple of nights ago, and she did. There was this little clip of this baton twirler that she included. So it was a dancer slash baton twirler. And can I tell you, she was not as good as yeah. me. She was, I was not gonna guess. as good as me. I was like, I could have done that. <laughs> My husband is like, she's in college. You're like so old compared to her. But I was like, I'm, I was still better than her. So anyway, I was like, darn I missed my chance.
0: Maybe, you know, you and Beyonce could have ended up being like a duo. Hey,
1: she can still holler at me.
0: (laughs) I'm sure she's going to listen. Yes, of course. Why not? If you could jump into a pool of something, what would it be? Right now,
1: goldfish. Do you see this?
0: Like, <laughs> Are those white cheddar?
1: These are plain saltine goldfish. People think it's like, oh, why are you I eating love that? Those. Yeah, it's so good. I
0: love those. It's
1: so good. It's so amazing. I literally buy about five bags every week of goldfish. My eight-year-old is like, mom, you need to lay off the goldfish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, it's not so much for your kids. No, like, no, no, no. When no. I'm working,
1: they have theirs, and I have my mom's stash that they know not to touch. What about the cheddar kind? I don't do the cheddar kind. Like, I don't do anything but the plain, that they just taste like oyster crackers. Five bags a week. It's ridiculous. What's your least favorite children's book
0: that your kids love?
1: Goodnight Moon. Like, it's I, I, the Moon is annoying. Everybody loves that book. I don't get anything out of that book. I'm like, can we read something else? <laughs> <laughs> Good night, Moon. Good night, yeah. Moon. Like, okay, next. <laughs>
0: yeah, mittens.
1: Kittens. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. Uh,
0: Brush yeah. mush. Yeah, no. yeah. What activity instantly calms you? Cleaning. Could you come to my house? <laughs> You'd be really, really calm. I promise. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're
1: welcome. It was so good to meet you, especially in this setting. This is great.
0: Thank you for doing this with me Lauren. oh yes this was fun this was awesome i know you're really busy
1: no it's an excuse they are all downstairs with Dad.
0: but i would like to see their little faces
1: do you want to see them yeah i do I'll, i will um carry you downstairs hey hold on hi this is austin this is the baby oh my gosh he's so big he's huge he's huge he just started walking like three weeks ago i'm like i need for you to walk for my back (sighs) hey kiddos you all want to say hey
0: hello hi 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 can you oh hello (laughs) (laughs) what's your name um my name is jaden this is caleb that's austin and you know and, her. And I know her.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know her. what grade are you in? <laughs> I'm in third grade. Okay. I'm, and, I'm what's in your, second. I'm you're in, in, not in second grade. I'm in kindergarten. I'm <laughs> actually in kindergarten.
0: Okay. Do you want me to take a screenshot of all of you?
1: Sure. Kiddos, you want to take a picture real quick? Mm-hmm. Okay. Please.
0: Hold on. What is your brother in you're the yeah. screaming pig.
1: Okay, okay. are you ready?
0: Are you guys one, ready? Two. Okay, I'm gonna count down. Do
1: me. Do me. Come
0: here. Three. Three two
1: uh. one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <I can't> <laughs> they they blocked the baby. <laughs>